WDIY Lehigh Valley Public Radio presents Lehigh Valley Discourse. Provocative, informative, and newsworthy, Lehigh Valley Discourse brings you the people and the issues that move and shape our region here on WDIY. If it's 6 p.m. on Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. I'm John Pierce, your host, our engineer this evening, James Johnson, working the board for us. Well, today you are going to hear from three high schoolers and the impressive amount of information they have for us about history. Because these are contestants in the National History Day contest, the annual theme of this contest is usually a phrase ending with, in history. The theme frames students' research within a historical context. The theme is chosen for the broad application to world, national, or state history and its relevance to ancient history or to the more recent past. The 2020 theme was Breaking Barriers in History, and the 2021 theme was Communication in History, the Key to Understanding. For March 2022, the theme is Debate and Diplomacy in History. It gives you an idea of what they do with the History Day contest. The three students who are going to talk to us today, first is uh, Matthew Keenan, and he's going to talk to us about the Silk Road. He's going way back in history. The second one is Eden Sendev, who is going to tell us about the history of presidential debates in this country. And the third one is Sophie Alahovich about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So let's get started with first up at bat is Matt Keenan. He's a ninth grader at the Saucon Valley School District. So Matt, when you chose your topic, which is the Silk Road, you were an eighth grader, correct? Yes. And why did you pick this topic? I picked this topic because I thought it was like a little bit unique and I thought it was more interesting than the other options that I came up with. Okay. Have you been interested in ancient history particularly through the years? Uh, yes, I have. I've always found it interesting, uh, more like Western history than uh, anything else. But I still thought, despite this, the Silk Road was interesting. Now, the Silk Road goes back how far? It goes back to even like uh, the 4th century A.D. But uh, in my project, I'm talking about the Silk Road during the the 1400s. Okay, so we're talking Middle Ages. Does the Silk Road exist now? In a way, it does. Like, countries like China have been trying to uh, remake it. Uh, their project is called the Belt and Road Initiative, and their goal is to increase their influence of the region by connecting them to the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Interesting. Nowadays, we don't call it the Silk Road anymore. But as you're saying, it, it really does, it goes back to the Middle Ages, and we could say that it still exists today. 
The, the topic of History Day this year was communication in history, the key to understanding. So what does the Silk Road have to do with this topic of communication? Uh, it connects in many ways. Uh, you had uh, religion spreading on it, and you had information spreading on it as well through uh, just traders from different regions bringing their culture and their ideas and joining them. In areas like the Middle East, this was especially common, where it was the center of everything. And it even brought the ideas of China to as far away as Europe and Italy. Right. What are the most important impacts of the Silk Road? I think what, what you've just mentioned uh, cultural impact, which is interesting because a lot of times we think of commerce as being products being brought from one country to another. But culture also plays a role. Yes. The culture of um, a lot of uh, Muslim nations, this was a boom in uh, uh, Muslim religion and ideas. This was a uh, really a spring of the Muslim world. It brought the Muslim religion itself to places like Mali in West Africa and Java in uh, Indonesia. And it also brought their navigating ideas to Europe, which also led to Christopher Columbus. Yes. Could you name some of the most important impacts of the Silk Road? The Silk Road, as far as uh, us specifically in Western civilization, it brought navigating techniques to Italy, as I said, which obviously led to the age of exploration and the discovery of America, which would have happened much later without it. And also in the Middle East, when the Ottomans took over Constantinople, they took a lot of the books there. In, in the Middle East, for the several centuries between uh, the fall of the Byzantines and the Renaissance, the Middle East kept on translating the Roman works and Greek works into many languages, which were, through the Silk Road, brought back to Italy and Spain, which led to a big boom in culture, which is known as the Renaissance. So you've mentioned religion and navigation techniques. Who are a couple of these important people? One is Ibn Battuta, and the other is Marco Polo. Why are they important in the paper that you wrote for National History Day? They're important because they were pretty average uh, people on the Silk Road, and they gave big insights, uh, especially Ibn Battuta, into the world that they experienced. They both wrote hundred page, like several hundred page uh, books, and their books allowed us to see what actually was happening in all areas of the Silk Road. And Marco Polo covered uh, the European to China area, which also showed Mongol Empire at its peak and how that they worked their bureaucracy well. And they allowed us to see this. Without them, we would have known very little about what the Silk Road was actually like for the people on it. Because of their writings. Marco Polo, 13th century, correct? Correct. And what about Ibn Battuta? Ibn Battuta was 13th 
13th century. Also. The 14th century was... So if, when I think way back many years ago to my dealings with history as a school child, I remember the name Marco Polo. That's very famous to us. But even Batuta is a new one to me. Do you have any idea why Marco Polo is so famous and even Batuta not so much? Yeah. yeah. That's just where we live, uh, in areas where Ibn Batuta was like the Middle East, Morocco, uh, modern-day Tunisia, Ibn Battuta is extremely famous. There's this shopping mall in Dubai where the different areas where Ibn Battuta traveled is separated into different areas of the mall. So it just depends on where we live and how we are taught the history. Marco Polo is more significant to Western uh, history. Because he brought back a lot of information that led Christopher Columbus and other explorers to decide to try their chances at making it to Asia and getting money and spreading their religion through it. And that shows us also how our idea of history is fashioned by where we live and who the teachers are. And what the impact is on us. And we're much more interested in impact on us than on other people. So we've talked about the Silk Road in the Middle Ages. After that came the Renaissance. How did the Silk Road contribute to Europe's Renaissance? As I said earlier, the Silk Road brought back a lot of classics to Europe, which kind of started domino effect with scholars and artisans but also brought culture to it, and the Black Death, which was a very negative thing, but also started a new era of European history. It kind of forced them to stop what they were doing and look more at science that were hit harder by the Black Death, like Italy, were also getting more uh, books and because they are more open to it. And Italy became very, very wealthy from it. The Black Death. Okay, I didn't really expect that to come into play here. The Black Death was what century? It was the 14th century. 14th century. How is the Western Age of Discovery and Age of Exploration, which you have mentioned before, rooted in the Silk Road? A lot of uh, the stuff that happened on the Silk Road makes its way across continents from stories of wealth written by Marco Polo coming back to Europe and spreading a sudden excitement and exploration, which set the seed for the age of exploration and navigation techniques like uh, the astrolabe, which was first made in the Middle East. They both found their way to Europe via the Silk Road. And... Without the promise of wealth, uh, Christopher Columbus would have uh, tried making it west, and his patrons, Isabella and Ferdinand of Castile and Aragon, would have patronized him. Now, we've been talking about the Silk Road with Matthew Keenan, who is a ninth grader in the Saucon Valley School District and has written a paper for National History Day about the Silk Road. Matt, why is it called 
the Silk Road? It's called the Silk Road because its name was coined that several centuries after it fell, but it was called that because it was uh, a started trade even with the Romans of uh, silk, which was uh, made exclusively in China and brought back to Europe and the Middle East, which is how it got its name. So the emphasis is on products that came from the Far East to Europe and products that might have gone from Europe to the, the uh, Far East not as prominent, and that's why it's called the Silk Road. How about the Silk Road and growth of the Mongol Empire, which you mentioned before? How is that connected? The Mongols were very uh, progressive, and their leaders were very progressive. They were very new, unlike the very stale and old places and empires that they were conquering. And they kind of turned over the soil and let everything happen. They wanted to recreate the Silk Road because, as we saw with Marco Polo, it made them super wealthy. And they obviously were able to uh, get profit off of it, which also made other places more willing to accept it and let in the Mongols and the Mongol ideals. And the Mongols also united most of Asia, and they uh, ushered in the Tax Mongolica, which was a era of peace uh, that was brought by the Mongols being so dominant at that time. And their just landmass alone allowed the Silk Road to grow within the borders and then eventually expand out of it to Morocco and Europe. Matt, you chose a topic, and you could have chosen any topic in history to go along with the theme of communication in history, the key to understanding, and you chose this very old theme of the uh, the Silk Road, and I congratulate you. You have uncovered for yourself many facts about this history from the Middle Ages, and I think this will uh, be in your memory for a long time to come. So, Matt, when you did this paper, when you wrote this paper for National History Day, you were an eighth grader, and now you're in ninth grade. What about your family? Do you have brothers and sisters? I have one brother, and he's a sophomore in high school. All right. So he's a little bit older than you are. You have any any pets at home? Yeah, I have uh, two English bulldogs. Oh, all right. So, extracurricular activities, uh, were you in sports or clubs? Well, at our school, uh, there wasn't much choice for clubs, especially with the coronavirus. But I did, uh, like, academic bowl, which was, it's like, uh, I don't know what other schools call it, but it's like uh, the scholastic competition with, uh, it's like Jeopardy, like, yes, close to Jeopardy. Yes. I play basketball and tennis, which I'm also planning to do in high school. Excellent. And was there a teacher who encouraged you as far as writing a paper about history? Yeah, I think two teachers. Uh, one teacher, uh, Mr. Sarkozy, is my social studies teacher who organized our uh, National History Day. And there's another teacher that uh, help me, uh, Mrs. Salvatore, who's the 
literature teacher, an English teacher out of school. Excellent. So two different disciplines. Well, a shout out to them for encouraging you. How do you think you might use your passion for history in the future? To be honest, I'm not really sure. Uh, I haven't thought about it much, but the UN has always been interesting to me. But otherwise, I'm not very sure. Right. It could be just a good hobby for you in the future. Well, we wish you well in high school, Matt. Thank you very much. You're welcome. This is Matthew Keenan, who wrote his paper about the Silk Road for National History Day. Stay with us. We will be back to talk about the history of presidential debates coming up next. For programming support on WDIY, we thank East Penn Sanitation, a local Lehigh Valley family-run business since 1982, working to keep the Lehigh Valley clean and green, offering residential, commercial, and industrial waste disposal and recycling services. For more information, 610-759-6398 or eastpensanitation.com. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar, every Thursday from 7 to 9, here on WDIY. Welcome back to Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. I'm John Pierce, interviewing today three high schoolers who have written history papers. And now we're going on to the U.S. and history of presidential debates. And let me say this about History Day. The intentional selection of the theme for the National History Day contest is to provide an opportunity for students to push past the antiquated view of history as mere facts and dates and drill down into historical content to develop perspective and understanding. So it's National History Day. The contest was held in March. And our next guest, Eden Sendef, is an eighth grader in the Parkland School District. Eden, when you wrote your paper, you were a seventh grader, correct? Yeah, I was. And now you're an eighth grader. Are you moving into high school at this point? No, um, my middle school is um, sixth through through eighth grade, so I'll still be in middle school. Middle school. And let us uh, go right to, to your topic, which is the history of presidential debates. What do you think drew you to this particular topic? Well, um, what drew me to the topic is I was watching the debates, the 2020 debates, and I was, and I just, I just thought they were interesting, and I wonder how they work, and what was their history. General interest in history, and also then politics, correct? Yeah. So let's talk about one of the points that you make in your paper. I thought it was really interesting. 
differences between verbal and nonverbal communication. Now, here on the radio, we're able to do only verbal communication, right? Yeah. Well, the differences between verbal and nonverbal communication are quite distinct. With verbal communication, you are using your words to communicate. So basically, you're speaking, you're using your voice. But with nonverbal communication, you're using your body to speak, so body language. So the way your eyes are moving, your, your stance, um, the, your facial expressions. So those are interesting uh, or important in presidential debates if you can be in the audience and see it live or watch it on television. Yeah, that is true. But on the radio, different. So you talk about the pre-classical era. What defines, defines the pre-classical era? The pre-classical era was the time between the 8th century B.C. and the 6th century A.D., it was a time, it was a Greco-Roman era. Why are we talking about that as far as presidential debates are concerned? Well, debates are traced back to Athens, where the very first debates, I believe, were in Athens. And Athens was one of the earliest democracies who used debating as a way to solve issues in government. Um, in government, right. yes. And obviously, all of the audience would be right there. On the spot. Yeah. Uh, no radio, no TV, uh, no way to, to hear the debates except to go to them in person. Yeah. I think it's a lot of fun just to remember, or, or try not to remember, but to try to imagine what it would have been like to live in that ancient time and be invited to go to hear that there was going to be a debate. And educated people loved those debates. Well, the thing is, I would probably not have been able to go because I was a woman, and women and only citizens were allowed to be part of the government. And you could not be a citizen if you weren't male or if you were slave or if you were a woman. So I would not have been able to attend, which is quite sad. Yes, well, from, a, from a 21st century point of view, correct. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, what, what a difference between them and us. What are some of the major topics discussed during debates? Now we're going to uh, skip up to the Renaissance for this one. Well, most of the debates in the Renaissance occurred within the Christian Church because the Church held a lot of power and influence over the world at that time. Well, mostly in Europe. Most, these debates mostly focused on uh, theological questions, while others touched on important topics such as individualism, rationalism, secularism, and humanism, which were very important ideas at the time, I believe. Right. So that's a, that's a change from your basic topic, which is political debates. Back, yeah. Back in the Renaissance, they were interested more in theological questions. Yes. And obviously, as you said, the church holding great influence over everything that was going on in society at that time. So you have you mentioned in your paper something about debates at Oxford University in England. What were they about? Well, most of the debates were quite straightforward. Yeah, you, you you mentioned uh, Queen Elizabeth the first oh, attending. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> well. Queen Elizabeth mostly attended debates at Oxford to assert herself into the male world of higher education 
And the debates at, at Oxford are not quite, during that time period, are not quite well documented. But I believe <laughs> one that I found funny in uh, a topic that I found funny in an article was uh, whether you should eat larger amounts of food at dinner or at lunch. <laughs> oh, wow. What an interesting thing for a debate at Oxford University, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> did, did you find an answer to that question? No, I, I really did not. It, w- it was quite hard. I searched for quite a long time, and I could not find an answer to that question. Interesting. Mostly Europeans eat more food at noontime or 1 o'clock or so, and not such, not so much uh, at supper time, whereas we do the opposite. I don't know how that happened that in the U.S., as so many of us came from Europe, that uh, yeah. we would change that, that habit. Now let's skip over the Atlantic Ocean and come to the U.S. and talk about debates that are quite famous back in the era of the Civil War, which were the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Why were they important? Well, these debates were quite important because they touched on topics that were important to the public, and also because they um, they gave a boost to Abraham Lincoln's political career by putting him in the spotlight for a while. Right. There were maybe seven of those debates, I believe. Yes, there, yeah, there were seven. Okay. And one of them would have been slavery and whether it should be spread uh, in states that were just forming or not. And that became a big issue, of course, for the Civil War. What was the first presidential debate to be broadcast in the United States? Well, first presidential debate to be broadcasted in the United States was through radio, and that was the Dewey Stassen debate in 1948, which I believe was the actually the only debate to ever focus on one topic, and that was... Uh, Communism. Yes. I believe. Yes. In that time, that was the big topic for sure. 1948, the uh, Second World War had ended only a few years before that. And it was the USSR was up and running and going to last until about 1990. So that was a, a fairly long run, at least in our lifetime. Jeez. And that was, uh, that was the big topic at the time, right? And that was the Truman Stassen debate. I think it was Dewey Stassen. Dewey Stassen. Yes, Dewey was the presidential nominee who lost to Truman. Then, hmm. during the Kennedy versus Nixon debates of 1960, why did the audience not agree to who exactly won the debate? Well, that is actually really interesting because the 1960 debate of Kennedy versus Nixon was the first time that a presidential debate had ever been broadcasted through television. Um, and so the people who watched um, Nixon on the, uh, who heard Nixon on, over the radio, thought he had won because he had a really steady voice. But those who watched him on television, he was quite fidgety and nervous. And the opposite was, and, the, and Kennedy was the opposite. So those who watched him on the television thought he won because he was completely calm, while those who heard him on the radio thought he lost because his voice was really nervous. And yeah, this is Kennedy you're talking about. Yeah. I remember those debates very well, and the fact that Kennedy challenged Nixon to a debate, and it seemed to me at the time Nixon was not in a position to decline. He had to accept, or he would look 
afraid of, of a debate. And on television, as you say, Kennedy looked better, less nervous, more self-assured. And Nixon, I never thought about it because I didn't listen on the radio. I saw it on television. Didn't think about Nixon's voice projecting more, more a, a more solid uh, way of, of speaking than Kennedy. But that's what you came up with uh, as far as difference between radio and television. So what is the importance of television in presidential debates? Well, television is important because it has allowed millions of people to see how capable the candidates are. And so it, it helps them judge which would be which candidate would be better for the presidential nomination. Well, it's, it's the closest thing to being there in person. Yes. How does the presence of social media nowadays affect a presidential campaign? Well, I think that it can affect um, a campaign in a lot of ways, but what it boils down to is that it can be used to spread the candidate's message far faster, I believe. Right. Are you on social media personally? Uh, no, I am not allowed to go on social media. All right. Uh, I'm not on social media either, but I thought that meant I'm an old fogey. <laughs> All right. So I'm glad to hear there's, there's a young person somewhere out there who's not on social media. What were the differences among the first, second presidential debates or between the first and second presidential debates of 2020 between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Well, the first debate was, um, I'm sorry if this offends anybody, it was just a complete mess. Um, <laughs> they were insulting each other, and it was kind of a bit of a national disgrace. <laughs> <All right. laughs> because the candidates were not allowed to be muted, so they were basically trading insults back and forth, and back right. and forth, and right. they were interrupting the moderator, and, well, in the second debate, none of that happened because candidates were able to be muted. They, yes. the, they could mute the candidates, so you couldn't just hear them bickering back and forth the whole time. Right. After so. that first debate, I, I said to myself, why don't they simply cut off the microphone of the person who's not supposed to be speaking and, and clean that up, and sure enough, they did. However, without consulting me, may I add. <laughs> um, so, Eden, were, were there any surprises that you came across in your delving into the history of presidential debates? Yeah, I think there were quite a lot of surprises because I did not expect that debating could go so far back in time. Right. You went way back to B.C., yeah. For the pre-classical era, and then we skipped to the Renaissance and Oxford University, and then the Lincoln-Douglas debates in the mid-19th century, and then up to the 20th century with the Kennedy-Nixon debates, which were the first to be televised, as you said. And then, of course, uh, 2020, Biden and Trump uh, being the most recent ones. And now we're so used to them that we expect there to be presidential debates. Yeah, that, that is very true. Eden, you are eighth grader now in the Parkland School District. Yes. Uh, how about your family? Do you have brothers and sisters? Oh, yeah, I do have um, a sister. Let's give her she's, a shout out. Is she older or younger than you? Uh, she's younger. <laughs> okay. How about uh, pets at home? We don't have any pets at the moment, but okay. 
but I think we might get some. <laughs> oh, all right. Is it, This one's from Mom and Dad. I hope you're listening. <laughs> Who's going to take care of the pets if you get them, Eden? Hmm, probably me. <laughs> That's what all children say. So do you have uh, any favorite classes at school? Do you like the best? Uh, yeah, I do. I, well, this year, last year, which would be seventh grade, in particular, I quite liked my history class. And what, what uh, did that cover? Was it U.S. history? No, they covered, like, Judaism. They... They covered, like, ancient history, I believe. Mm-hmm. Very interesting for a middle school to do that. How about uh, extracurricular activities like sports or clubs? Have you been in any of those? Well, not, not for the school, but I have done um, martial arts for a while. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. wait, I did do uh, extracurricular activity. I was in jazz band. Oh, yes, a big one. All right. Yeah. We, we like jazz here at WDIY. Do you, uh, you have a certain passion for history? Is, it, might this uh, follow up in the future? Uh, I don't really know, honestly. Was there a teacher who encouraged you in, as far as your subject uh, of presidential debates? Uh, yeah. Um, I believe that my history teacher actually... We were watching uh, some kind of news station in class, and the teacher said, and it was, um, they were, had a segment on presidential debates, and my teacher stopped the video and said, ooh, this would be a good topic. And I was like, oh, that, that's a good idea. So good. I chose presidential debates. Good for topic. your teacher. What, what's the teacher's name? Um, Daniel Helfrich. All right. Helfrich. Good, good for him for, for doing that, for stopping the tape. Well, we've been chatting here with eighth grader from the Parkland School District, Eden Sendiff, and she wrote her paper for National History Day on presidential debates. Eden, thanks so much for joining us today, and best of luck as you go into your eighth grade. Thank you as well. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Stay tuned now, folks, as we go ahead with our third student of the day, who is going to talk to us about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Stay tuned here on Lehigh Valley Discourse. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100, extension 6, or WDIY.org. Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. That's Thursday night at 11, right here on WDIY Allentown, Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. Many choices, real voices. We're back talking about National History Day, 
which took place in March. Students 6th through 12th grades, either individually or as a group, can submit a project from one of the following categories, a paper, exhibit, performance, documentary, or website. The three students with whom I'm speaking today have chosen to write a paper. After reviewing the year's theme and choosing a topic, the student gathers primary and secondary sources pertaining to the research. All sources need to be clearly cited in the annotated bibliography that is required for all projects. This sounds like a very serious endeavor, Sophie. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of work, but I enjoyed it and it was fun learning about my topic. This is Sophie Elohovich, who is a ninth grader in the Parkland School District, and her topic is the Cuban Missile Crisis. What can you tell us, Sophie, about the Cold War? Well, the Cold War never involved fighting, but it was an arms race of epic proportions between two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. It was a political war, and it never resulted in fighting, but it definitely came close. Close was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Communication between the United States, Soviet Union, and Cuba led to the installation of Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba, a naval blockade of Cuba, and the eventual removal of the weapons in the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. It was the nearest the world has come to nuclear war. Wow. Yes. Very frightening at the time. Yeah. I can tell you. The um, What Sophie just said was a paragraph from her paper to give you listeners a flavor of how papers are written for the National History Day contest. Sophie, tell us a little bit about the alliance between Khrushchev and Castro. How did that come about and what did it lead to? Well, the United States and the Soviet Union did not have good relations when Fidel Castro seized power in 1959 as part of the Cuban Revolution. After Castro came to power, the United States stopped trading with Cuba. It kind of became a the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation because in 1960, the Soviet Union began trading its oil for Cuba's sugar, essentially replacing the U.S. Eventually, this led to the Soviet Union giving Cuba military equipment as well. Finally, Khrushchev and Castro formed an alliance while they were in, ironically enough, New York. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I didn't realize that happened in New York. The United States attacked Cuba in the Bay of Pigs attack. What was the result of that? Well, in April 1961, America invaded Cuba in the Bay of Pigs attack, as you said. The U.S. was trying to oust Castro, and the CIA planned the attack. They trained 1,400 Cubans who had fled Cuba after Castro came to power and used them to attack Cuba. However, the attack completely failed because the Cuban exiles were outnumbered by Castro's troops. The Cuban exiles surrendered after less than 24 hours of fighting. This left Castro triumphant and President Kennedy completely shamed by the incompetent and ineffective attack. Exactly. How I remember. The United States also executed Operation Mongoose. What was that and what did it entail? Well, after the failed Bay of Pigs attack, Castro announced to the world that he was a Marxist-Leninist, a.k.a. a communist. 
he declared that Cuba was now a communist nation. Obviously, many people, including the U.S. government, had thought this before, but now Castro was admitting it, proving it. The U.S. definitely still wanted Castro out of government. So, Kennedy authorized Operation Mongoose. Operation Mongoose was an espionage campaign. The CIA executed 6,000 acts of sabotage against the Cuban government. These actions made Castro nervous. He knew the U.S. wanted him either removed from Cuba or dead. He turned to Khrushchev, who was also anxious, because if Castro lost to the U.S., he would look powerless. So Khrushchev had the idea to put missiles in Cuba. He thought that if he put nuclear missiles in Cuba without the U.S. knowing, they could protect Cuba and balance out U.S. missiles in Turkey near Moscow. He believed that when the U.S. discovered the weapons, it would be too late since they were already there. Castro agreed, and that's how the Cuban Missile Crisis began. Wow. And I remember very well that I was an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan at the time, and it's the one time in all of my years of schooling when I went to a professor and said, I'm afraid. Yeah. What is going to happen here? Because we were on the brink of nuclear war, weren't we? Yeah. I was obviously not alive back then, but I can imagine that must have been terrifying. It was. Especially because... As, an, as a citizen and not someone in government, you didn't really have any power. There wasn't anything you could do, only really the president and some select others. Right, and we didn't know whom to trust at that time. What, yeah. what, what would Khrushchev do? What would Castro do and their alliance? Uh, the USSR provided military aid to Cuba in six groups, which I didn't know. What were these six groups? Well, first was common weapons like tanks and artillery. Second was defensive missiles. Third was protection for those missiles. Fourth was advanced aircraft. Fifth was medium-range ballistic missiles called MRBMs. And sixth was intermediate-range ballistic missiles called IRBMs. Different types of missiles were placed by the USSR in Cuba, as you say. What was the difference between the medium-range ballistic missiles and intermediate-range ballistic missiles? Well, the only real difference between them was their range. Medium-range ballistic missiles had a smaller range from 1,000 to 3,000 kilometers. Intermediate-range ballistic missiles had a larger range from 3,000 to 5,000 kilometers. How did the U.S. discover the Soviet missiles in Cuba? Well, in late August, the director of the CIA at the time, John McCone, informed President Kennedy of an increase in military shipments from the Soviets to Cuba. A week later, on August 29th, a U-2, a type of recon reconnaissance plane, flew over Cuba and exposed defensive missiles. This worried Kennedy enough to send an advisor, Ted Sorensen, to meet with the Soviet ambassador in D.C., Anatoly Dobrynin. Dobrynin told Sorensen that the military buildup was defensive, so the U.S. shouldn't worry. After that, many messages between the U.S. and the Soviet Union were exchanged, both publicly and privately. In them, the Soviet Union repeatedly assured that they would not put offensive missiles in Cuba, and the United States repeatedly warned that they would not tolerate offensive missiles in Cuba. Then, on October 14th, Major Richard Heiser and Major Rudolf Anderson Jr. flew another U-2 plane over Cuba. This one discovered offensive missiles in Cuba. The photos from the flight clearly showed missile sites being built in Cuba. This meant two things. 
One, the Soviet Union had definitely put offensive missiles in Cuba, and two, they had lied about it. That they had put defensive missiles in Cuba. No, defensive missiles weren't really an issue because they only go from the surface, like the ground, to the air. So they only like stop other things that are coming into the country. Right. What the U.S. was worried about was offensive missiles in Cuba, which are surface-to-surface missiles, and they're meant to harm another country. Right. Now, presidents have their pre-planned schedules, and it seems that President Kennedy kept to his pre-planned schedule during this missile crisis. Does that strike you as odd? No, I actually think it was a good idea. When the offensive missiles in Cuba were found, President Kennedy obviously had a lot more on his plate and probably a lot more stress. He had regular meetings with officials and advisors to discuss how to handle the situation. However, those weren't public. Like, the public didn't know about those. So he stuck to his pre-planned schedules, attending all of the events he would have before the missiles were found. And he did this so that the public would not be alarmed and so Khrushchev wouldn't know whether the U.S. had discovered the missiles yet, because at this time, it wasn't public knowledge that there were offensive missiles in Cuba. Interesting, yes. And one of the important points from the Soviet point of view was for the U.S. not to discover yeah. that the I missiles mean, were there. The Soviet Union knew that the U.S. would eventually discover the missiles. It was only a matter of time. But I think they hoped that it would be later when the missiles were almost built completely. And so this way, President Kennedy didn't tell them that, like, I know they're there. And the, U the Soviet Union was kind of kept in the dark. Now, U.S. officials thought of two strategies when missiles were found in Cuba, a quarantine and an airstrike. What about these two? Okay, so the quarantine was a naval quarantine of Cuba, which would stop Soviet ships from bringing any more military equipment into Cuba. The other strategy, the airstrike, was where the U.S. would try to knock down and destroy all of the missiles in Cuba. The officials and advisors who were aiding President Kennedy during the crisis were called the Executive Committee of the National Security Council. A bit of a mouthful, so they're just called the XCOM for short. XCOM was divided between the two ideas, so they debated, and each side helped the other group fix the flaws in their strategies. Finally, they presented their plans to Kennedy, because the final decision was up to the president. He chose the naval quarantine. I think he chose that plan because the quarantine put pressure on the Soviet Union and Cuba, but still allowed for an airstrike later if needed. An airstrike would have immediately started military conflict. In addition, it would have hurt many innocent civilians, and it was uncertain that the strike would destroy all the missiles and nuclear weapons in Cuba. Right. So many decisions to make. Yeah. So once President Kennedy like, chose a strategy, the naval quarantine, he wrote a letter to Khrushchev on October 22nd, and in it he like, pretty much announced that he had found the missiles, and he explained why he was doing a naval quarantine. And he said in it, I quote, I have not assumed that you or any other sane man would, in this nuclear age, deliberately plunge the world into war, which it is crystal clear no country could win and which could only result in catastrophic consequences to the whole world, including the aggressor. Then, on the same day, he said in a televised speech about the naval quarantine that, 
Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere and, we hope, around the world. The next day, on October 23rd, U.S. ships surrounded Cuba and the naval quarantine began. Are we talking about 1962? Yes, this is yes. In 1962. Right. And the two quotes that Sophie has given us uh, by President Kennedy were in her paper that she has yeah. written for National History Day about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, Sophie, how did Khrushchev and Kennedy communicate? What did they talk about? Well, first off, Khrushchev and Kennedy communicated a lot, so much. For a time, communications were almost daily between the U.S. and Khrushchev. The methods of their communication were many. There were TV addresses and speeches, which the public could hear as well. There were also radio communications, letters between the two leaders, and meetings between representatives for both countries. In fact, Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, and Anatoly Dobrynin, a Soviet ambassador, met and in other ways communicated multiple times. In all of these interactions, the two sides were debating, discussing, and bargaining. For example, the first quote that I read before was in a letter from Kennedy to Khrushchev. He was explaining his thoughts on how Khrushchev had put missiles in Cuba. So the second quote was from a televised speech by Kennedy. He explained the reasoning behind the naval quarantine of Cuba. Afterwards, Khrushchev wrote him a letter in return in which he explained his thoughts on the naval quarantine, which were much different than Kennedy's. The two world powers also bargained and compromised in their messages to each other. They were both looking for a solution to the crisis, and they used communication and compromise to find one. Lots of communication between the two. So this goes along well with the topic this year of uh, communication yeah, in history. That's how I related my paper about the Cuban Missile Crisis to the theme of communication. Now, the Soviets denied the presence of Soviet missiles in Cuba, as you've said, for as long as they could. What proved to the world that they were lying? Well, the U.S. published photos of Soviet missiles in Cuba at a United Nations meeting, which was televised, and that was proof to the world that the Soviets had been lying. So again, at nowadays we look to videos and photos all the time, which are really important now in court cases. Yeah, and very so true. that was in if you want the court of public opinion yes. was was swayed by those pictures. The countries most involved in the crisis were the U.S., Soviet Union, and Cuba. However, Turkey also had a role in the crisis. How was Turkey involved? Well, Turkey was involved because it had a base for American missiles. Turkey was close to Moscow, so Khrushchev thought that putting missiles in Cuba near the United States would balance the American missiles in Turkey. The removal of the missiles in Turkey also played a role in the compromise between the Soviet Union and the United States. So what compromise did the U.S. and USSR reach? Well, Khrushchev wrote to President Kennedy on October 26th with the first draft, kind of, of the compromise. The Soviets would remove the missiles from Cuba if the U.S. would end the naval blockade and agree not to invade Cuba. Khrushchev later added that he wanted the American missiles in Turkey removed as part of the deal. President Kennedy agreed to remove the missiles in Turkey 
in secret without the public knowing. Khrushchev agreed to this, and that was the final compromise to which both sides agreed. America's no-invasion promise was actually nullified later when Castro wouldn't allow the UN to moderate the missile removal, but it didn't matter, and the U.S. didn't invade Cuba anyway. And of course, the removal of American missiles in Turkey was later declassified, which is why I know about it now. Well, how did this compromise affect Cuba? Well, the biggest thing was obviously that the missiles in Cuba were removed. They were gone. When Khrushchev had the missiles removed, Fidel Castro was furious. He felt abandoned, I think. The Soviet Union just took away the weapons that had given Castro's country some protection. He felt like the Soviet Union had just given up. But there was nothing Castro could do about it, because even though the missiles were in Cuba, they were still Soviet missiles. What is the history of the travel ban between the U.S. and Cuba? Following the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy prohibited travel to Cuba by Americans. In 1977, America lifted its Cuban travel ban, but it was reinstated in 1982. President Obama eased travel restrictions in 2009 and eased the economic embargo in 2016. In 2017, President Trump reinstated travel and business restrictions. It's kind of back and forth. It is, and for 50 years. Yeah. We've been dealing with the, is it safe or is it possible to go to Cuba? Yeah. Sometimes it's been that you would have to travel from here to Mexico first and then to Cuba. So it changes as... As the years go on, are there any positive effects as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis? I think there were. There were some positive effects. Afterwards, the U.S. and the Soviet Union made efforts to improve their relationship, and the world realized what a threat to peace nuclear weapons were and still are. Kennedy asked for tolerance toward the Soviet Union in 1963. Soon after, the U.S., Soviet Union, and Great Britain signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which limited nuclear testing. The tensions of the Cold War relaxed in the 1970s, and the United States and Soviet Union had the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks. In 1987, the Soviet Union and the U.S. both signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And finally, in 1991, the Cold War ended. I think this all happened kind of as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because I think something that's important to understand was that when Khrushchev put missiles in Cuba, he wasn't trying to start a nuclear war. He said later that he did not want to start a nuclear war. But he, I mean, it almost did. And so after that, I think both countries and people around the world, too, realized that we have to be really, really careful with nuclear weapons. Great point. Now let's think about your perception of the crisis. Has it changed from before you wrote your paper for National History Day and now? Well, when I decided to do a project on this topic, I had no idea about it. I did not know the first thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis. When I skimmed the Wikipedia page to get a general idea of what it was about, my first question to my parents was, who's Fidel Castro? <laughs> that was the starting point. And so yeah. I think that I've come a long way and I've definitely learned a lot. My biggest change of perception on the crisis was when I realized that there were uh, a lot of sides to the same story. So many things happened. I mostly studied how the U.S. handled the crisis. But as I read and learned more, I realized that discussions, meetings, and debates just as intense must have happened in the Soviet Union and probably Cuba as well. 
It was a real-life example of how people in different situations could see the same thing in opposite ways. Khrushchev and Castro saw putting missiles in Cuba as a form of protection. They thought it was a good idea. Meanwhile, President Kennedy thought it was crazy. He thought that it might start a nuclear war. Khrushchev hated the naval barricade of Cuba that the United States used. He compared it to an ultimatum and said that if the Soviet Union did the same thing to the U.S., we would be outraged. Meanwhile, President Kennedy thought it was the best option, the best idea, in a bad situation. He thought he was defending peace and freedom. Even when Khrushchev and Kennedy both agreed to remove the missiles, Castro was furious. Who was right in these situations? That depends on who you ask. I know who I think was right. I know how I feel about what happens. But no doubt there are others who feel differently, who think that I'm wrong. That's why communication is so important. Everyone has different perspectives, different opinions. We need communication so we can bridge those different points of view and find a way to agree. Even if we can't agree, we have to find a way to live with each other, to coexist, to find a compromise. And that is what communication is for. We need communication to find compromise. And Sophie, very nicely, you have brought us back to the topic this year from National History Day, and that is communication in history, the key to understanding. You've covered that very nicely. Thank you. Now, let me remind you that the topic for March of 2022 is debate and diplomacy in history. You're probably already thinking about what you're going to write for that. Uh, yeah, I have started thinking about it. Um, I'm not quite sure what I want to do with it yet. I think it's nice to take a little break. I've been working hard on this project <laughs> yes, for a are. long time. So I've been taking the month off, I think, I like the summer so far. I haven't really thought about it too much, but it's definitely been at the back of my mind. Mm. I'm excited to do it again. Well, you do have a passion for history. Yeah, I think I definitely like history. I love learning about it. I also really like ancient history, too. I love reading Greek myths and learning about that, so that's great. I also really, really love to write. So I, I'm thinking of one day being a writer. Uh, I, I prefer writing fiction, but I like, I mean, writing nonfiction has been pretty good so far, too. So, so it makes sense that you choose to write a paper yeah. for... History Day, instead of one of the other projects that you could have chosen. Yes. This is Sophie Alahovich, who has enlightened us about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It brings back many memories to me, and most of them not good. But I'm glad yeah. you mentioned what you think are some positive outcomes from this. Mrs. Alahovich is here with us. What would you say about your family? Is Sophie your star of the family? Do you have other children? Uh, everyone has their role. You know, that's all about balance. So Sophie, we're incredibly proud of her. And she's very driven and so bright. You know, obviously communication is a strength of hers as well. And then we also have her younger brother, Noah. So we want to give a shout out to him. He keeps us yeah. all balanced. And <laughs> my younger brother, Noah, is great. I love him more than anything else in the Way world. Way to go. He makes us Wonderful. all laugh and not take life so seriously. We have a little bit of a debate about who actually suggested the topic of the yeah. missile crisis to Sophie. And my husband <laughs> likes to take credit. I like to take credit. But in the end, she did all of the work on her own. And it's just incredible the amount that she's learned. And we're really proud of her. But he's an NPR junkie. So I think he just to say, NPR. you know, hi, <laughs> Matias. Sorry you can't be here. But shout out to him as well. Yeah. We all love we NPR. We love <laughs> And we love NPR junkies. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sophie, thanks so much for coming by our microphones here at WDIY. Your first time here, right? That's correct. I had a great time. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. And dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm John Pierce, your host. On the board working the magic for us over there is James Johnson. And we want to leave you with one last thought. Sophie? Remember to be gentle with your neighbor.